How to value players with injury risk, binary risk, replacement level risk, categorical risk, a risk bonanza, plus a preview of some undervalued and overvalued players for first round of 2022 drafts. It's our live event from the desert at First Pitch Arizona presented by Baseball HQ. Beat the Shift Live is next. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Oh, wait a second. Something seems different about this podcast. Yeah, we are live from First Pitch Arizona, presented here by Baseball HQ. So excited to be here, and we've got a live audience. Yeah, unbelievable. Really looking forward to here. Uh, we've got a great guest on the show for tonight. Want to introduce uh, from Roto Grinders. He is the author of The Bat and The Bat X Projections, Derek Hardy. Welcome to the show, Derek. Yeah, thanks so much. Happy to be a part of it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, a great audience. How many of you here have heard the Beat the Shift podcast before? All right, there we go. Sounds good. Well, as we do on our show, we jump right into things. And uh, uh, but, but first, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, projections here. Uh, uh, Derek Hardy is a big projections guy. And uh, uh, first of all, you know, what, what are some new things that you might be working on for 2022 as far as uh, your projection system, the bat? Yeah, so I mean, uh, last year I launched the Bat X, which uses uh, stat cast data for hitters, launch angles, exit velocity, that sort of thing. Uh, so the natural next step is to do it for pitchers, which uh, – the data is a lot more robust for it's a lot more complicated to build that out so it's taken a little longer but that's definitely the plan to account for spin rates and uh you know pitch movement and tunneling and late break and all, all that kind of fun stuff so that's uh that's next on the docket for me yeah um you know part of the the problem or the the hurdle of projecting 2021 was that 2020 was a short season. We only had 60 games, and you know the question before the season was how much weight to put on it. Um, I found that projections in general have fared pretty well. If you have uh, used projections and you know for whatever they were worth this year, you've fared well. Why do you think that 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 was true, even though we had the short season and projections would be not as good on the whole, at least we thought. Yeah, I mean, it was a great year for projections, and I think they did well because uh, projections are awesome, math is good, and if you don't use them, you're bad at fantasy. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think just I, – I think variance is obviously part of it. Like, you have an outlier year. It's always going to be in part due to luck. Also, though, I think it was uh, – I feel like the general public didn't know what to do with 2020, and so they tried to build narratives around it. And you could build narratives in either direction. Well, the sample was – was too small the season was too short like they had this weird like ramp up period and some guys weren't ready so let's just let's just throw the season out um and then there are some people who were like well you know it was 2020 it was the most recent season you have to count it the same as anything else but the sample was smaller so like i think no matter how you built a narrative around it you could have found yourself making a mistake whereas projections are objective they looked at it for what it was accounted for it for what it was and they didn't try to you know make it anything other than what it was so the bat fared well this year ariel how did atc projections fare this year 
Uh, pretty good. Um, I'll have my annual uh, projections uh, comparison article up in a couple of weeks. But yeah, on the whole, I think I think uh, if if you did listen to projections, ATC did very well. Um, I, I'm I'm sure we'll see the bat doing very well. Also, I have to official, officially test it. I know in in 2021, in 2020, uh, the bat X did extremely well, uh, and in that short season, actually beat all all the projections that I did. So, looking forward for the 2021 results as well. And they also helped our seasons as well. So I know I know they, they helped, did. but yeah. I wanted to know exactly how well they helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll quantify it soon. Um, I want to talk a lot about risk tonight, uh, since we've got a lot of risk experts and. Uh, you know, we were talking to a bunch of guys at, at the ballpark, went to the Arizona Fall League game uh, just a couple minutes ago, and something which is not talked about enough, not quantified enough, is uh, the risk a- a component of valuation. So you know, I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. Um, let's start with high-risk players, and let's go to Ruvain first uh, in, in terms of this question. How do you evaluate players that have had past injuries? You know, we're talking like a Byron Buxton. We're talking like a Mondesi. How about a Stanton? How about a Degrom? How about a Bieber? Like, what do you? What? How do you evaluate you? Is there a way to to quantify or to say, listen, Degrom is a clear first rounder. I mean, healthy Degrom is probably the number one overall fantasy value. How can you value someone with an uncertain injury future? It's extremely hard. You really don't know because it's based on what the injury is, how they're recovering, where they are in the stage recovery during the, during the time of the draft, and you just don't know because people can have setbacks. Beginning of last year, everyone was drafting Chris Sale, Noah Syndergaard, thinking they both come back in July, August. What happened? One did, one didn't. So it's, it's very hard to, to place a value on them. The best thing to do is just to keep track and just monitor the injuries how they fare, see if they're playing in spring training, see how they're faring in the offseason. I'm sure you'll hear news about that. That's the only real way to actually put a number value on that. Okay, there. Risk is one of the toughest things to evaluate in fantasy, and it's not something I've spent a lot of time trying to do, in part because I don't think the data that we have is necessarily robust enough to give us definitive answers. And also because it's it's really, really hard for something that I'm not sure is ultimately going to give us a lot of benefit. There have been studies done by guys like Jeff Zimmerman, and he basically said for hitters, unless it's a uh, like a recurrent injury, it's not predictive. Like if a guy just, you know, breaks his finger sliding into second base, like he got unlucky, it has nothing to do with his future injury risk potential. And so um, I think it's important to not – um, overweight or over account for uh, injuries when we don't even know how predictive they are. So, so I think uh, it, it's a it's a fine line to walk. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the injury expert here, but to me, you know, there's a difference between some of the soft tissue injuries versus the other injuries. Guys who have tweaked hamstrings and quads and stuff versus oh, I broke a bone, you know, on a pitch. Oh, uh, you know, guys who have fluky injuries even twice in a row. You know, that's just a fluke. But the chronic injuries were hamstring. I mean, Byron Buxton, to me, is a huge problem. I was about to say that. Byron Buxton, Adalberto Mondesi. What the heck do you do with them? Do you draft them like they're going to be MVPs, like they could be, like they've shown they could be? Or do you just say, you know what? I've had enough of them. I've had them every year, and I fail with them. Leave them alone. It's up to you. It's, it's, it's a matter of risk and how much risk you want to have on your roster. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, at Mondesi, for example, you know— the, 
we, we talked to James Anderson earlier in the year, and James Anderson was saying that you know Bobby Witt Jr., who's going to come up, he profiles as a third baseman, and Mondesi would be the better player in the infield. He should be the shortstop. That's how really they should do it. But to me, the fact that Mondesi moved over to third base, that tells me that the Royals are pretty down on Mondesi being able to complete a whole season. Uh, I think that you know Bobby Wood Jr. is going to come up be the shortstop, and so they're not counting on Mondesi to be to be the big guy. But it also shows how high they are on Nicky Lopez that they want to keep him in the lineup. Also, uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, my point is that I think when you're projecting, when you're um, estimating Mondesi, I don't think that you can project him for anywhere near a full season. I think that you got to start with a, take the playing time way down. I think 40 stolen bases is not in play for Mondesi. You know things like that. Um, you know, talking with some guys uh, over again at, at the uh, Arizona Fall League, and I brought up th- this case. What if you have? What if you have a binary case? Meaning, it's it's not about injury. It's about uh, is it or not. So I'll give you the example. Kenley Jansen is is going to be a free agent, right? Let's say you're playing in a mono league. Let's say you're in a NL only league next year, right? And he doesn't sign as to be anywhere. And it's February fifteenth, and you have a draft. And so you projected that if he's a closer, he's a $16 value. If he in signs in an NL team, if he signs in an AL team, well, his value is zero. Question is, what would you pay for him at an NL-only auction at that point? Show of hands, how many people would pay $8, exactly half the value? Eight? Only one hand in the room. You would. Yeah, I really. would. Really? If, if I think there's an equal chance of him signing in the AL and the NL, sure, why not? Really? Okay. Would anybody pay nine? No. How about seven? Can I get seven? Six? I would pay eight. I would pay five. Well, you, yes. <laughs> Raise your hand now if you'd pay six. How about five? Would you pay five? Oh, four? One dollar? Would everybody pay one? So everybody I, would pay one, right? So I think this I, is really interesting. Actually, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't pay one. I'd rather spend that one dollar on the prospective closer on a team that I know is in the National League. I'd rather do that because that's, that's a safer thing. I don't know. That dollar would be replaced in the waiver wire, that, but I don't know that, about that. That dollar so, would be Jake McGee, though. The thing uh-huh. is, though, if we know that he's a $16 player for sure, right. which is what you're saying, and that there's a 50% chance of him being in the National League, his actual National League value is $8. Most people here said they'd pay four, five, six. Very few people said they would pay eight, which shows that I think human beings by nature are risk averse. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something we can take advantage of in fantasy. Like, why would you not pay what he's actually worth just because the range of outcomes is wider? You're, yeah. you're throwing away value. In the long run, of course, the answer is he's worth eight, right, because it's a 50-50 shot. But I think in a single season, as part of an aggregate team, you know, there, there's some risk. Like if you're playing the stock market and you're playing for a quarter uh, and you have to show a return at the end of the quarter, um, companies don't just say, well, we're just going to take half the value. There is a factor for risk, right? This, just to put it in – and I don't want to go crazy math here, but the standard deviation of a player who – Seven could be seven nine seven nine is a lot smaller than sixteen zero, and the risk you know you you have to get a market discount to account for that risk, and the risk is definitely greater. It's a buy, it's it's a wider spread, so there is a discount. If you I mean I, I do these kinds of models all day. I work in the finance industry, and 
you know, if you're going to, uh, uh, you have to account for, for the risk. Like when I do pricing in fantasy baseball, it, it's, it's a risk-adjusted price. I know that there is a more uncertain situation. I need to get a little bit more of a discount to take that. I think that, you know, whatever, depending upon whatever formula methodology, you might come up with, okay, he's worth eight in the long term, but the risk component says I got to get him for a $3 discount. Right, there is some discount. The answer, I don't think, is eight. The answer is you need a discount, whether it's seven, six, or five. Well, I would never buy a player at his value anyway. Sure. So, but just like, you know, whatever I, my max number would be for him, that's what I would pick. And, okay. And maybe that's wrong. Um, I don't know. I don't account for risk, I guess, as much as you do. Okay. Um, I, I think of it in terms of expected value, and if I'm getting positive expected value on a player, then I'm getting positive expected value on a player. Right, okay. Then what do you do with a case with someone like Yasiel Puig last year? How about Trevor Bauer for 2022? Or even Trevor Bauer. Right. Now, it's not 50-50. Maybe it's 90-10. I don't know. Although, he's back on, online posting videos every day. So, I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's the kind of situation. I mean, there's an expected value if you given whatever probability. But, again, you can't buy at that price. You have to risk adjust. Um, you know, uh, Ruben was talking to me uh, earlier about consistency, consistency of players, and uh, why don't you give that little uh, little bit of trivia here with, uh, oh, let's, uh, <laughs> let's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So we're talking about players that are low risk. So when we talk about that, we want to know, one, time, one thing we want to see is how much playing time they get. So my question for the room here right now how many players this past year played in 150 games? How many? I hear eight. Anything else? It's, it's higher than that. Yeah. Much 20? higher. Much higher than that. Okay. 48 players played in 150 games or more this past year. Okay. Who had Mitch Hanniger at 157 games this year, right? Okay. Next, and one other, on a follow for this, how many players played 160 games or more this year? And can you name them? <laughs> Is it eight? It's seven. Okay. It's Pretty seven. Good. Pretty good. J.P. Crawford, Dansby Swanson, Austin Riley, 160. Vlad Jr., Sal Perez, 161. Sal Perez? <laughs> Sal Perez. DH, right? <laughs> right? Whit Merrifield, Marcus Simeon, 162. Two more things. Whit Merrifield has missed four games since opening day 2018. Four games. Marcus Simeon has missed ten. Those guys are very low risk. Yeah. Is is that the case though? That that's I guess where part of my my issue comes from is that are we treating noise as signal? Like just because they've played 160 games or they haven't missed games in the past, is that indicative of what they're going to do in the future? as opposed to a guy who just got unlucky, got banged up, missed a couple weeks this year, but it's not predictive of him getting banged up in the future. I think the inverse is, is more true, that if they've been consistent, then they're a lower risk. Obviously, anybody can get injured, injured at any time, but you know, Mon uh, Mon Merrifield has been out there. It's kind of a, kind of a good clue. And but, then but why is that? Uh, sorry, not, but like why, is, uh, why are we convinced that they're low risk? Why, why isn't it? possibly just they're on the you know the tail end of the distribution they're just the guys that happen to get lucky and happen to not get injured happen to not have any sort of like minor ailment throughout the whole year and they're just the guys that it happened to happen for and next year 
they are maybe going to get banged up or like like how do we know like where's the proof that those guys are actually low risk well then then it brings my next point talking about pitchers how many pitchers this year pitched over 200 innings I see a hand over there. Four from got a four from Justin Mason there, who is correct. The answer is four. I'm sure you can name them also. Um, Zach Wheeler, Walker Bueller, Sandy Alcantara, who's going to be, I think, overpriced next year, and Adam Wainwright. Who had Adam Wainwright at over 200 innings this year? Yeah. Nobody. So if you wanted to take a risk and draft Adam Wainwright, you got lucky. Pitch, yeah. Pitchers, it's, I think it's a different animal because pitchers get a lot injured more, uh, more often than hitters do. So I think it's a different animal when it comes to this type of consistency. Yeah, you know, there are other types of risk other than health. That's just, which one risk we're talking about. Um, you know, one, one risk that I think is easier to see is uh, categorical risk, portfolio risk. Um, you know, it, uh, to take the, the very, very strict case, you know, at Alberto Mondesi, the reason why last year I was totally off him, do not buy him. And it wasn't because, oh, you know, I, I didn't believe his projection. It wasn't because, oh, I really thought that he's really injured, which is the case. But it's the risk to your portfolio from an outside source. So if you drafted Mondesi, you must have banked on like 40 or 50 steals, right? You're not drafting him and then say, well, you know what? I got to draft a lot more speed. You went for power elsewhere because I got Mondesi, right? Um, the problem with drafting him is now if he's injured, if, and there's a percentage chance for that, what happens to your portfolio? Your steals crater. I mean, uh, it, it, did anybody here actually draft Mondesi? Yeah, and can, yeah, you, and yes. can, can you tell me, was your, was that a, what happened to your steals after that? Struggled all year, right. Uh, it's, an, it's an outsized player. Whereas players who are more even across the board in categories have less of an effect. I was, if you've heard the show, I was always a big proponent of Alex Verdugo, Mark Hanna, Xander Bogarts. I'm naming guys from the top and bottom. Bo Bichette, up all the way up top, because they do something in every category. A, it doesn't crash your portfolio. It means you're still, you know, yes, you've lost a, if you lost the shape, you lost a valuable player, but you're not searching for, oh, no, it's one source. I need a specific type of player to fill in. It, it, you're, you don't have that. Um, Mark Hanna is even better because, you know, he's low down. You can still replace him for somewhat value, and it can be from any source. And guys like the old, I always remember, like Alex Gordon used to play Alexei Ramirez. They, they, they always had a very stable, they had some steals, they had some power. And you know what? If they had a bad year in power, maybe they had a better year in batting average or a better year in, in steals, right? They, many paths to value is a lower risk category. And I think that when you're seeing players who are spread across the board in terms of categorical risk, that's another type of risk. And that should be priced into your portfolio. Bo Bichette, here's a question. For, how about a question for the audience? I'm going to give you two players. Who would you take in the first round of next year? Vladimir Guerrero Jr., okay? Vlad, oh my God, Vlad, or Bo Bichette. Raise your hand if you would rather draft Bo Bichette. Raise your hand if you're Vlad. All right, 50-50. Derek, wh what would you do? Whichever one the projections end up liking more. <laughs> <laughs> good answer, good answer. <laughs> Ruby? I would take um, Bo Bichette. I, I would probably take Bichette, yeah. um, but maybe for a different reason than, than you would. Okay, what's the reason? The reason is because I don't want to take a corner infielder that high. Um, okay. But okay, I, where different. you're going with the category thing, which I think is valid too. Um, but if Vlad, you know, projects 
$5 higher, $10 higher, like just in a vacuum, if those are my only two choices, I'd take Vlad. And we had Bobachet on almost every single one of our teams this year. We had either Bobachet or Marcus Simeon on either one, on all our teams this year. So we love that profile. That's the best possible profile. You want a, a stable player in the, in the first round? Juan Soto almost completely duplicated his 2019 season this year. Almost completely. A little less stolen bases, but otherwise the same. And Whit Merrifield, he, he's close to the league lead in, in hits every single year. Why would you not want that on your roster? Yeah. Let's talk about uh, uh, another another risk of uh, replacement level risk. So you know, the question is, how high would you draft? And we, we did a little bit of this on, on our prior show. Salvador Perez, right? Fantastic player. He, you know, he, he hit uh, 40, what, 48 homers or so. Um, and he's going to be DHing a lot. So he played a lot of games. I, I have no problem with him. Um, how high would, would, would you go for, for Salvador Perez next year? Is he a can you draft him in the third round? Uh, is it too high to draft a catcher? Well, what are your thoughts on, on the risk? The, the, the question, of course, the risk is if you don't if, – if your catcher gets hurt, then the replacement level of him is so bad. You're getting a really crappy catcher. If your corner infielder gets hurt, well, there are some pickings down below. It's not a big drop. So there's more risk in drafting a catcher a little bit higher than you think. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess risk doesn't come into it as much for me. There's risk taking anyone in fantasy baseball. It's baseball. Guys get hurt. Things happen. Things play out differently than you expect them to. Guys overperform. Guys underperform. Uh, risk is unavoidable. Um, yeah, maybe there's ways you can mitigate it. I'm not confident in my abilities to um, accurately assess risk. Uh, again, I think a lot of times we, when we think about risk, we treat noise as signal. We think we're assessing risk when really we're just assessing noise. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, catchers, obviously, this is kind of a different thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, really what it comes down to for me is where the value is. If I don't think Salvador Perez is going to come at any kind of discount next year, so I'm sure I'm not going to be in on Salvador Perez. But if there's a high-end catcher that is going to come at a discount, I'm not going to necessarily avoid him just because – he's a high end catcher. And if he gets hurt, then, you know, I have to replace him with someone, someone bad. Like if he's a value, he's a value. Okay. And getting a player at value during the draft is the wrong thing. You have to try to get them under the value. Right. So you get a profit. Cause if you get a person, a player at value, you're going to lose out getting a profit later on. And that's not the way to do it. You want to get the highest on your board that you think is going to get the most profit at that time. If salary price is equal at that time, you're not going to get the profit and it's not worth it. Yeah, let's talk about uh, ace pitchers who, just maybe five, six, seven years ago, if if you picked a, a pitcher in the first round, you'd be like, okay, you know, this ain't like picking a kicker. You know, it's like picking a kicker in football. Hey, <laughs> you gotta wait on that. They're too risky. You don't pick them until the third round, maybe for Kershaw. You go to the second round, maybe first round. But now um, the case is that. At least, well, you tell me if this is true, but the case is that an ace is the way to go, that they're actually less risky, that their return on investment, when you spend the money, you're actually going to hold quite a lot of value. I did some research on just pitcher strikeouts, and the pitchers in the first four rounds, oh, they were the highest strikeout pitchers of the league. Sure, there were some 200 strikeout pitchers sprinkled down, but, oh, they, they you wanted strikeouts. You needed a pitcher in the first round. I know uh, uh, Batflip Crazy uh, Toby Givon, 
he well, he picks two pitchers in the first two. Obviously, his risk assessment is that's the way to go. I'm not going to take mid-level mid-level pitchers as risks. I'll take the darts down below, and you know who cares? It, there's always a return on a free quantity. But I, I'm taking I'm taking those pitchers up. What, what, what's your sense in the whole uh, pitchers in in the first second round? Yeah, I've been saying for for years that pitchers get underdrafted, and the market I think has gotten a lot more efficient over the last year or two, and people have started to take pitchers in the first round where they belong. If you run run projections and valuations at the start of the year, the last few years basically, you know, probably two or three of the top five most valuable, you know, in terms of preseason projected value players, have been pitchers. Like last year, Jacob Degrom projected far and away, I think by pretty much any reasonable projection system or method as the guy you should take as the first pitch, first uh, pick, you know, in the draft. Um, and some guys did that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think I have no problem taking a pitcher in the first round. I think the, oh, well, pitchers are injury prone and too risky and you just got to take someone safe in the first round. Well, how'd that work out for the guy who drafted Ronald Acuna or Mike Trout or like, like safe isn't a thing. If you're playing, for safety, you're playing to lose. So I, I just, I, I don't agree with that philosophy. I like taking pitchers early. Um, that being said, I do think there's a big difference between the truly elite pitchers, like the top like three or four guys every year. It's going to be a little bit different, and that next tier, that next tier, that tier two and tier three. A lot of times, that tier gets overdrafted. I feel like, and I don't want to be part of that. I want one of the real elite guys. And the main thing is to get one. I don't think two works yeah. because if you go look at the ADP from last year, the top ten ADP starters from last year, seven out of ten had thirty games started, and ten to twenty ADP from last year, four out of ten had only had thirty games started. That means it's it's a coin flip whether these guys are actually going to get some get get you the numbers that you need. So one starter is good, one ace is good. Which one it is, every year is different. You, you, you can pick Garrett Cole, and he can he's, he's healthy. He's healthy now, but that doesn't mean he's not going to be healthy soon. Lance McCullers, he's healthy. He's doing great in the playoffs. He has a, an, he's now not in the ALCS. He has a forearm strain. He had an MRI. They said they're not worried. What does that mean for next year? I have no idea. Are you, are you going to draft him early on? Is he going to be your second guy? You can draft him in the second round. You can draft him in the third round. You can draft him in the fourth round. What's his value going to be? Yeah, I found that, uh, and when I ran my numbers on uh, the the uh, return per round per per player, so for starting pitchers, the 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 expected the a I should say the average return in the first round was like nineteen dollars for a pitcher, seventeen for the second round, fourth round sixteen, then it drops eight minus in the sixth round this year. There's a huge drop off in the first four rounds to the rest. And then there's an even, and then there's just a whole lull in the middle until you get to some darts down by the 20th round, the 23rd round, 24th round. Those, those return on investments are gonna be a lot higher. You're putting up a dollar, three dollars, and yet they're returning something. But the whole middle, I found, is really, is really barren. So the case for at least an ace is the way to go. Here's an interesting question for you. Um, are you better off playing in one league drafting two two of the ace pitchers, or are you better off playing in two leagues drafting one? Right, which is which is the bigger the way the better way to spread your risk? Play in multiple leagues or pick two in the same league? That's an interesting question, right? <laughs> I don't know if I understand the question. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, um, let's say you're an NFBC player, all right? You know, can you uh, if you play in one league and you do the pocket aces and take two in the first three rounds, okay. or you could say, you know what? 
I, I, I want to try a different strategy. I'm going to play in two NFBC leagues, just do one ace in one and one ace in the other. Which do you think is more beneficial? <laughs> I would think the second approach. I, I don't think it's necessarily yeah. like a spreading the risk thing or anything like that. I just think that's the sounder, the sounder approach. I think you're going to get the better value doing it that way. So that's the way I do it. But yeah. I, also, I also think it matters where you're drafting. If you're drafting early in the first round, I think you may be better off getting a hitter. It may be a little bit, quote-unquote, safer. Um, if you're drafting later in the first round, beginning of the second round, you want to you know, around the turn, you want to get a pit, an ace there, that's probably the place to get it because you can get a hitter and a pitcher so that you have less risk when it comes to get that starting pitcher. And it's all going to depend on, on the way rankings are stratified any given year, where you're picking. Like, you're not going into the first round saying, okay, no matter where I'm picking, I'm going to take a pitcher because I listened to the Beat the Shift podcast, and those guys <laughs> said I got to take a pitcher in the first round. Like, no. Like, if if the best player on the board is a hitter, take the freaking hitter. Yeah, um, 100%. But don't be afraid of taking the pitcher if he is the most valuable guy on the board. Yeah. want to talk – you mentioned a little bit about auction and, and about uh, corner infield. Before we talk a little bit about that, um, I want to get your take on – uh, the general concept of spread the risk in an auction versus stars and scrubs. Stars and scrubs is where you take you take a, a $40 player and you take a dollar player at the bottom versus spread the risk is more 2020. We actually had a mailbag question uh, from MVP Nacho who asked something very similar. Uh, you know, what's, what's your thought on the approach in, in auctions? Uh, and does it differ for hitters versus pitcher in the strategy? I think it differs based on a number of different factors. I think it depends on on the type of league that you're in, the depth of the league, and it depends on the way your league mates approach the auction and the way kind of market dynamics uh, evolve throughout the draft. So like if you're in a deep league, an AL-only league, an NL-only league, it's a lot tougher to get away with stars and scrubs because your scrubs – are a lot of times are guys that, you know, they're going to play once a week or they might be starting in the minors. Like, you might be rostering dead spots. And so that doesn't work in a, in a league like that. In a mixed league where scrubs are guys who are actually going to be playing every day or semi-regularly, then I think that has a little bit more, um, you know, of value to it. Um, and I think it depends, too, on on market dynamics. If the, the league is drafting, you know, very efficiently – and the guys that you're buying for a dollar or two are actually worth, you know, a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. That that's not as valuable as if everyone is pricing up the high end guys and there's inflation on the high end guys. And in the end of the draft, you can get for your one dollar or two dollar, you can get a guy that's worth nine dollars or ten dollars. Then then you want to approach it more that way. You, so it really depends, and uh, knowing your league goes a long way towards knowing how how to how to structure your own auction. I think. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent with that. I mean, the two key things that you hit on is number one, it depends on the league depth, and yes, stars and scrubs works better in a mixed league and with a sh- more shallow depth. And the uh, spread the risk approach works a lot better in the tighter leagues, in the uh, the uh, the lo- longer depth of a league, uh, mono leagues and 15, 18 team mixed. Uh, but the point you made also is, is it really depends on what the others are pricing. I mean, uh, to me, I, I don't go into an auction and say I have to. I'm going to do stars and scrubs, or I'm not going to. I'm going to do spread the risk. Um, I want to be able to pick out value in every spot. 
I want to be able to say, okay, is there any value in the $30 range? Is there any value in the $25 range? Is there any value in the $10 range? Because I want to, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to a jewelry store and there's a bunch of bins, there's the, the, the platinum bin, there's the, the diamond bin, there's the gold bin and the silver bin, you know, I, I want to be able to pick out a nice gem that works in each category. I, I don't go and say, I'm just going to take the diamonds and a bunch of scrubs. Right? I, I want to be able to look at each bin and value for myself what I think is a good value in each place. I mean, um, the thing about auctions is it's more about the market. You know, there's market premiums and discounts. If, if everybody is paying a dollar over for the stars up top, Paying that dollar over is a great idea. It's a small market premium for the top. You'll find that if you don't do that, they're, they're going to get that top player, and they're going to extract value at the bottom because they're going to have the money to do it. But if you're in a situation that they're paying $8, $10 above market, it does not pay to play in that bin. You're going to soak up the whole middle and, by the way, also the end, and you're going to get value from all those places. I mean, just to show you, I played this year in both Tout Wars and Labor. In Labor, I was very aggressive early on because the market premiums were low. I saw that, you know, I can get a guy at 30, I can get a guy at 25, and I bid, I kept pressing the button online, go, 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 and everyone said, wow, that guy keeps bidding. In Tout Wars, I didn't buy anybody for the first 30 players. Prices were haywire, and everyone's like, <laughs> "I guess Ariel's not going to do anything." <laughs> what? We're, we're, what are you waiting for? You got nobody. We're worried, and I soaked up the entire middle—a seventeen-dollar uh, Tim Anderson and a thirteen-dollar Jose Abreu. What? A fifteen-dollar Pete Alonso, and of course I got that because everyone didn't have the money. And by the way, I instead I scooped up the whole bottom. Yes, I didn't have a dollar bids at the bottom. But I had the $3 bids, which turned into the 9 instead of the $1 turning to 5 So I got value from all those places. And it's because I saw at the very top test what the market. Where is the market premium? Is it the market over? Then you got to play a certain way. Is the market not strong enough? Then go at it and be strong. I also think there's something having to do with knowing the entire player pool. If you're doing stars and scrubs, you're going to be living on the waiver wire the entire season. You're going to be flipping guys back and forth. If you're not knowledgeable about this and you just go blindly and you're like, uh-oh, I don't have any outfielders left. What do I do? You're going to be in trouble also. So if you know that you don't know the player pool that well, Stars and Scrubs is not going to work for you. If you do know it well, then you know what? You know the diamond in the rough. You have a better chance of picking that diamond in the rough, and then you can do Stars and Scrubs, and it does work. You know, and talking about value, you know, Derek is the uh, NL Labor Champion of this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, one thing I know that you do is you go hard on a specific type of corner infielder, or yeah, I should say you pay attention greatly to what happens in the corner infielder. Can you just explain your method there and what you see? I mean, every again, every year is going to be different, but the last year or two, there's just been a lot of value at corner infield, and I think that's because of biases that um, – that fantasy players have a lot of players that are corner infielders are playing corner infield because they're older. They're nearing the end of their career. They can't play the other defensive positions. And so they're older, boring players and fantasy players don't like old, boring players. Even if they're good players, even if they will give you value, fantasy players don't want that. They want the shiny new toy. They want the rookie. They want the guy that's the, the hype, hypey breakout guy or whatever, the sleepers, um, and that's not usually corner infielders. Um, and so you wind up with guys, I mean, this year was just the perfect example of it. 
you wind up with guys like Joey Votto going at 400 ADP or Brandon Belt going at 400 ADP or CJ Cron going too late or just like Evan Longoria, Eduardo Escobar, like these guys that coming into the year, how many of you, like, raise your hand if any of you, like, said going into a draft, I know I'm going to get Joey Votto. I know I'm going to get Brandon Belt. Not one of you. I went into every single draft thinking I'm going to get these guys because no one else wants them and they're good. Um, and so I just I, I think that's something to pay attention to. And and that was the question earlier about Vlad, Vlad and Bachet. I don't want to take Vlad early because I'm locking up a corner infield spot. I don't want to pay, you know, market value for Vlad or even get a two dollar discount on Vlad when I'm gonna get a ten dollar discount on Votto later. And think about this. Three players in the full last two full seasons, 2019 and this past year, have hit 35 or more home runs for the entire season. Two of them are corner infielders. Can you name them? 35 or more home 35 runs. 35 or more home runs in the last two full seasons, 2019 and this year. Two of them are corner infielders. Pete Alonzo. Pete Alonzo was one. Anyone? Jose Abreu did not. He did not reach it in 2019. Bryce Harper is the outfielder. He did it twice also. Matt Olson. Mm, Matt, Matt Olson. Olson is a reliable middle infielder. He's not going to go expensive. He's not that sexy new toy that's there. And you know what? You can get him for a good value, and you can almost bank those 35 homers. He, as long as he stays where he is and he has that pretty decent lineup and he doesn't get hurt and doesn't break his finger, then he's perfectly fine. He'll hit those 35 home runs. I'm going to throw out a, uh, an auction strategy for you guys here, and Ruben and I have done this. It's called the Joey Votto uh, nomination strategy. Um, what I mean by that is Joey Votto, as Derek knows, is one of these guys that he goes for a dollar or two at the end of the auction, but he's going to be worth six, seven, or at least that's what the values say. You know, it's massive. It's a six-dollar profit at the very end, at least by projections. Go for the last couple of years. Joey I mean, Votto. if you're using the bad X, it probably told you like twelve to fifteen, <laughs> <laughs> right? And if you're using ATC, it was like around ten, also. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still high. Um, but the reason why I say that is. Um, if I'd be happy to buy Joey Votto for a dollar or two in the auction, what I hate is for somebody else to buy Joey Votto for a dollar or two at the auction. So what I do is somewhere in the middle, if I see if I've already bought uh, my first my first baseman, maybe or if I haven't, doesn't matter. Um, I throw out somewhere in the middle. We're not up to a dollar days, but Joey Votto two dollars. And if I win him, I'm pretty happy that I won Joey Votto for two. But if I don't win him, that means somebody's bidding three, four, and they always go higher than they should in the middle. It collapses his return on investment, right? So now you've got to pay $5 for a Joey Votto to be worth seven. I'm okay with somebody else getting that little dinky return, and I'm okay with me getting the big return. So that's why I collapse it. I want to collapse the issue. Nominations and auctions are extremely important, should not be wasted at any point. There's a lot of good economic things you can do. And we actually did that two years ago in labor. We did that, yeah. and on the radio, while they were listening to us, they were like, Too what early. Are you, what are you doing? Who's nominating Joey Votto in the third <laughs> round? What are you doing? Well, I love the third, but yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense, and, and nominations and auction dynamics is something I've learned a lot of from you. Like That was definitely one of the holes in my game that I feel like I've gotten better at you know, learning from you and all this type of stuff. Um, and it makes sense because there you only have, you know, a first, third corner, maybe util. You have a finite number of, of these. And so if you think Vado and Belt and Longoria and Escobar and Cron and add three or four more guys into there, you're not going to be able to roster all of them. 
So once you right. have one or two of them at a price that you like, you don't want to let the other ones go too cheap at the end of the draft. So you right. throw them out early when people still have some money to spend so that, you know, maybe they go for $5 instead of going for a dollar or $2 and yep. other people don't get those massive bargains that are inevitable because there's so many of those types of guys. And again, every year is different. Maybe, you know, maybe that's it, not going to be the case this year, but like yes. it has been, you know, in the it's, recent past. It's the same numbers, just switch the names. It's going to be one. somebody else. But of course, you know, uh, of course, uh, we're going to circle a guy and we're going to say this is a Joey Votto nomination, right? So that's what it is. Uh, we're going to do some mailbag and we're going to take audience questions in, in a minute. We're going to do one more topic. Uh, if you do have a question, you can li start lining up now at the microphone uh, for us. Uh, but let's, let's do a little bit of fun. Let's talk about first round next year. And I'm not interested in who's in the first round, who's the top five. I, everybody else will cover that. Beautiful. But uh, let's just do a little bit of um, who is somebody that might be drafted in the first round in 2022 that you think actually is even undervalued in the first round? Um, again, we don't have ADP yet. We don't know where guys are necessarily going to go. Uh, my first inclination would be Trey Turner. He was a guy that the Bad X was high on this year. I wound up with him in several leagues. Um, I think there's a real case to be made for him with the number one pick. And, uh, you know, if he winds up going six, seven, eight, you know, I, I think he should probably be higher than that. But it's early, haven't run projections yet, don't know for sure. But that, that would be what I would think. Like, he's a good hitter, contributes in all the categories. Maybe a low-risk guy. I don't know, guys. T you tell me. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, Until he gets hit by a pitch, because that's, that's his downfall. He always misses time during the season after getting hit by a pitch because he leans into the pitches. But that's another thing. <laughs> yeah. um, I would actually go with Ronald Acuna Jr. Okay, he's coming off of an injury, but it takes six months to recover from from an ACL repair. He will be back. He will be fine. He will be undervalued. If he was, he can, he could hypothetically be a number one pick. He was the number two player in fantasy when he got hurt. He still had, I think, what the fourth most stolen bases or fifth most in baseball, and he missed the last three months. He's a guy. If you can get him at the end of the first round, I'll be all over that in a second. Yeah. If. If uh, if you want to draft him, draft him before he gets on a field. As soon as he gets on a field in spring training, whoa, his ADP goes. goes from late first, first early second, poof, all the way up to, to the beginning. Well, he's healthy, guys. Yeah, we, we are going to see that with him. Yes. Yes. His yes. ADP is going to go up from the beginning of February to the yes. end of March. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, nothing will happen in that one day in his terms of his recovery to warrant such a dr nope. drastic thing. So nope. there's going to be a market in inefficiency to exploit at some point. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Bo Bichette. As I said before, Bo Bichette is the guy to bank on. He's now done this a couple years in a row. He's a lock for that batting average, which is so key. He's a lock for that stolen. Ooh, you got to get stolen bases in the first four rounds. He's a lock there. He'll give you plenty of power. That lineup in the Blue Jays is phenomenal. The counting stats, you know, runs and RBIs are two-fifths of your scoring categories. That's 40%. I mean, Bichette is going to be right smack in the middle. Uh, I'll go with Bo Bichette. Uh, how about somebody who um, is draft, who might be drafted in the first round that we think is overvalu overvalued and probably shouldn't be drafted in the first round? I'll start with Ruvain. I'm going to go with Garrett Cole. I'm a little bit nervous about him. He's ERA after not having the sticky stuff. Wait, I know. He, wait, he didn't use sticky stuff, right? No. Um, I think that he is going to be overvalued. I think there are other pitchers there. I think Walker Bueller may be the number one pitcher in baseball next year. I think he may be the number one. You can, you can make a case for DeGrom. I'm a little nervous about him coming back also. But I'm more nervous about Garrett Cole because 
He's playing in New York. He's he's playing for his team, which is great, but I'm a little bit nervous. He's got the strikeouts. Those are great, but that 7 ERA over the second half of the season scares me. Derek? I was going to say Freddie Freeman because he's a corner infielder, but <laughs> um, is Walker Bueller going to be in consideration in the first round? Because if that's the case, I want nothing to do with that. Really? Wow. Like literally zero Walker Bueller. Wow. Why? Why? Because he's not as good as people think he the is. The whip, though, is great. There, he is yeah, a whip when you have a 220 BABIP, of course the whip's going to be great. <laughs> then who's the number one pitcher in baseball right now in fantasy? I don't know. Yeah, but we're talking about the future. We're, we're not projecting the past. Like, you Ooh. have to, like, you look at what Walker Bueller did. He had all sorts wow. of, like, good luck metrics. His, his, like, underlying, like, peripheral ERAs were, like, good, but they weren't great. Um, I just I don't think Walker Buehler is as good as people think he is. I think he's like the 15th best pitcher in baseball. And for fantasy, he'll be better than that because of innings, because he pitches for the Dodgers. He'll get wins. Uh, exactly. But, but Walker Buehler is not like an ace in the strict sense of the word. I think he can bank on him for the strikeouts, and I think the whip plays a lot. I mean, the ERA, I understand, but I think the whip pay, plays. His career, ER, his career whip is 1.01. Uh, it's very, very tough to find great whip players outside uh, of of the seventh, eighth round. So I, I don't know about that, Walker Bueller. But hey, that's why we do the show here to get different opinions. My, uh, I say Shohei Otani is is not a first rounder. Regression, regression, regression. Is the guy going to keep up the stealing? Maybe. Uh, the batting average is not a great batting average for the first round. I'm not sold on Otani. Um, you know, they let him go this year. Who knows? He does have more increased risk because he plays and he pitches. So uh, who knows? I don't think he's a first-rounder. Um, hold, ha- hold on. Just Uh-oh. one second. Just one yeah. second. I'm pulling up fan graphs on my phone. I'm like, come on. Walker Bueller's BABIP the last several years, 247 this year, 198 in 2020, 248 in 2018. Like, of course his whips have been good. He's not giving up any hits. Yeah, didn't Matt Cain That's do that good. for like uh, for like five years in a row? And then the defense yeah. behind him is getting better. They it's, got Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts is a gold glover. Though. Like, there's, right. like, I will bet you any <laughs> amount of money right now, Walker Bueller over or under 247 BABIP. Every single person in this room is going to say over or they're wrong. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's going to regress. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. The question is regress to what, of course. Well, then, but, well, so then like would, you, would you rather have Walker Buehler at the end of the first round or Robbie Ray in the fourth round? Robbie Ray. Like, literally anyone except Walker Buehler in the but, first but, round. But what about <laughs> – wow. All right, one more try here. One more try, Derek. What, what about the floor argument? Sure, he's not as good as there, but I don't see the bottom falling out. And to me, if you're going to get fourth-round value out of Walker Buehler in the first round, that actually is not bad in my, in my opinion. What do you think about the floor argument? I mean, I don't know if there is a <laughs> I'm floor. I'm trying here. <laughs> Steamer has him projected for a 360 ERA. His XFIP was 357 this year. Last year it was 393. Like, the floor is not that high. Like, right. he, he's, right. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about Bueller, but, like, I feel like it's just a case of it. recency bias. I love okay. it. I love it. How about somebody who's uh, not going to be drafted in the first round in 2022 but should be, Derek? I'm not going to say Walker Bueller. <laughs> uh, probably another pitcher, though, um, because as we said, like the real elite aces should be going higher. Um, I don't know who that's going to be this year. Uh, maybe like a guy like Corbin Burns. I think the biggest question mark with him is just the innings, what kind of volume you're going to get out of him. But he is, I think, at this point, the second best pitcher in baseball on a rate basis after DeGrom. 
Max Scherzer. I'm if, fine with Scherzer. If, Mac, if, if, yeah. if Bueller's not number one, then Scherzer can be the number one. And people are not going to take him in the first round. He can, go, he can go in the first round, and I think that's the pitch. Pick. Yeah, I remember that, uh, you, know, you and I teamed up in a league, Derek, uh, this year uh, in uh, GDD. And I remember Max Scherzer was up, and we're like, I'm like, you know, there's a market premium here. Go that extra dollar. It was do- $2 over our values. Like, the market premium says that's good. Everyone's going plus five. I think we're happy we did that, right? That was, oh, yeah. That was, uh, that was our anchor. Yeah, uh, that, that was a good pick. Uh, my guy is uh, well. How about uh, Tio Scott Hernandez? Um, look at 2019 Juan Soto. Uh, his, he had 282 batting average, 34 homers, 12 steals, 110 RBIs. Tio Scott Hernandez this year, 296 batting average, 32 homers, 12 steals, 116 RBIs. That's really close to what Juan Soto put up in 2019. Yes, he's older, sure, but look at that lineup. I mean, I think that there he look who he's batting. You got Vlad, you got Bichette. He's gonna have every time he comes up, there's gonna be traffic. Uh, I think the counting stacks you can bank on. Yes, he's not gonna hit 296, but I think there's a good case that he'll be up high. The power is real. He has the tendency to steal. So does the, the rest of the Blue Jays. Uh, I think that there's an undervalued player who might have consideration to be drafted late first round. Plus, I mean, I, plus, plus, Oscar was better in the second half when he was in Toronto alone. The offense is just really good. So it's not like he was affected by playing in Florida, by playing in, in, in Buffalo. He played better in Toronto in the second half. Yeah, I've, I mean, the Bad X has always been a big fan of him. It was calling a breakout, you know, for a while. Uh, first round might be aggressive, but I am a fan of him, a huge fan of the Blue Jays' offense. Um, so I like him. Yeah. All right, let's do some mailbag and audience questions here. Uh, if anybody has a question, don't be shy. Uh, we're here. We'll have some fun. Uh, come up to the mic uh, and uh, ask away here. Anybody have a question? Shy? Yeah, go ahead. Come on to the mic here. Uh, say your name, of course, for everybody, and into the mic. And there. I'm David. I have a question for you, Derek. All right. Talking about, talking about <laughs> auctions. In your opinion, what's the bigger sin? Over, overpaying for a player or leaving money on the table? It's leaving money on the table, and it's something that I personally struggle with. I've, I've gotten better at it, but there have definitely been years where I leave too much money on the table because I'm too stubborn and I won't overpay for a player. And it's like they said, if you see everyone jacking players up 4 5 $6 early in the auction, be content taking a couple guys plus one, plus two. Um, because otherwise, you're going to have too much money at the end, and whatever money, you know, whatever like value you're not extracting at the high end that you were hoping to, like you're not going to get at the low end anyway. So like, make sure you spend all your money. That that's the main thing. And my kids would never be guilty of that sin of holding money. No. Ruve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you can't, I, you can't leave money on the table. I, I get so frustrated when I see players are in a, on an auction and they leave six, seven, eight dollars on the table when they were bidding high on a player and then he just stopped and they had this leftover money. I, I, sometimes we do this. Sometimes we do leave money on the table. We've this past Not year, much. this past year we actually did leave a, uh, some, some, a few dollars in some of our home leagues. But you know what? We were still happy with our team. Our team was well rounded, so I, I didn't have a problem with it. But. You know, they get to a point where you're going to say, you know what, maybe I should have paid that extra dollar for Reese Hoskins. Maybe I should have paid that extra dollar for that corner infield for the Freddie Freeman. I was willing to go to 38, but I wasn't willing to go to 39, and now I have money on the table. I'd rather spend the money when I have it, and you know what, you can still get those bargains later. Almost yeah. every year I find myself saying, you know what, 
I wish I bought one more high-end player. Right. And, and that comes from someone who does play extremely disciplined. Like if you're someone who is just willing to buy a bunch of high-end players, don't buy another because that, you know, that, that's my impression of it. But um, if you are playing disciplined, you are playing the value game, um, you know, don't be afraid to buy that extra high-end guy, especially if the room is bidding guys up because there will be values later that you'll be able to take advantage of. If, if you're left over with money, it means you're not reading the market premium correctly. So that's something you need to adjust in your game. So here's a perfect guy for you guys to talk about. Anthony Rendon, he's a corner man, and he's injured. So what's going to happen in 2022 with Anthony Rendon? I mean, he could – oh, go ahead. No, 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 you can go first. Cause I'm, I'm, I mean, I can't speak to the injury stuff. Ruvain definitely can do that better than I can. Um, but he does, in my mind right now, fit the mold of, of a guy who has a track record of being a good hitter is getting older, is boring. Now he has the injury stuff. My first impression is he's going to wind up going too low in drafts, and, and he could be one of these kind of later corner infield bargains. I was actually going to mention him in my injury report. He had season-ending surgery to address right hip impingement in August. I'm a little bit nervous for that because you use the hips to generate power. If you see in spring, if he's playing in spring, that his power is not there, I would be very nervous. There you go. I mean, a lot of value you can extract from players who were injured last year who are now back and veteran players in general. So, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's more about the understanding of the injury, which, you know, Ruben can address. But all things considered, if he's playing, uh, I think he would be a bargain. Uh, earlier, you're talking about Sal Perez. And if you were to go down the risk of what your replacement would be there, but isn't that already factored in with positional adjustments? Isn't he getting a benefit for that by being a catcher? So how can you give him the benefit up, up front, but then also hold it against him at the end? Okay, so to me, there's two things. There's positional scarcity, which is where you say, okay, because the 30th catcher is worth negative seven and would never be on any roster whatsoever, we got to add $7 to everybody so that the last catcher is worth a dollar, right? And you're buying that one so that Salvador Perez's value up top is you're not paying for Salvador Perez. You're paying for the privilege of not buying that $30 catcher plus his value, right? You're, you're, you're privileged not to get that crappy catcher, so you add that privilege to Salvador Perez. That is a real thing. That's true. But then there's a question of go from that, is it go up higher and now the market is paying a premium on top of that or a discount. Maybe he's a couple lower and that's, that, then that's, a, uh, that's a discount versus a premium. Um, you know, I found that we played in, in this year especially, I bought Salvador Perez in both labor and in, and in tout wars. Um, and I think that they're on top of the scarcity adjustment, the market was discounting catchers. And we got Salvador Perez for you know, 16, 17, whatever it was. Um, whereas the value dictated he probably should have been about 20, 22. So I did the calculation, and then on top, you adjust. In a draft, I think of it this way. You know, let's say, uh, let's call the super elite catchers Salvador Perez and JT Real Muto, okay? And, you know, whatever, however you think, one, two, they're, they're much higher than the rest of the catcher market, I'm sure. If everybody else in the draft is taking um, is taking catchers way 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 down. If you're inflating that value and you're taking in the third round, fourth round these catchers, 
you paid a bigger premium than the market is giving for catchers in general. And the reverse is true. If the next catcher goes off the board after five, oh my God, Salvador Perez really looks good. So the true answer is that there's a scarcity adjustment and then there's what the market does, right? It's always about comparison to the market and how, how it compares. And the tough part with catchers is that you don't know what the market's going to do because you need to make the decision on those high-end guys before you get the information on the low-end guys. So That's may, too bad drafts in general. And because yeah. you, and if it's an auction, you're going to be setting the price. If you budget into your plan that you're going to get Salvador Perez for this price, stick to that price. If you start going higher and higher, it's going to screw your budget. You take money out of other positions, and it's going to it's going to it's going to um, you have issues in other places. So the issue isn't the positional scarcity itself. It's that the scarcity funnels the market uh, into just those. The very high end. Yeah, because the, 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 what you said is true. There is, yes, catchers have to be valued for that, but then you go to different leagues and they're doing different things. Some leagues are going haywire and some leagues are not giving enough credit, and that's where you can extract value is taking your scarcity adjustment but saying, wait a minute, who's doing the right adjustment after that? Is it a premium or a discount for the market being paid? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, anybody else have any other questions in our uh, mailbag section? Yeah, we have somebody. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. My name's Joe. I'm new to all this, so bear with me. Um, but auctions are my favorite. If you haven't done an auction, by all means, please do so. That to me, that 100%. is the that is the ultimate. But a couple of things you guys have been talking about: one, risk, all those things. The common denominator, I think, in all of that stuff are the are the projections again. That that's the foundation. That's going to be determine what's risky what isn't how much so to me that's the most important thing like what you were saying because everybody could have different projections too right yeah. so your risk could be different than his risk so no. i think that on the auction piece and the stars and scrubs um i think it's really important and you said it ariel try to get one at each level if you can because so many times i've seen people save all their money all the good players are gone and then they get down to the middle or the lower and they have all this money and it's like well, what am i going to spend it on now so if you can i think it's key to try to get a, a high middle low you know that type of thing don't don't save your money all the way till the end because then no matter what the value is you got a bunch of guys that just aren't going to contribute to the to the overall uh, totals but that's something very important that you mentioned. If you see someone saving their money and they're not spending on somebody and you yourself plan on going on the middle players, you have to understand that those middle players are going to be inflated because there are other people in the room who still have money. And you have to be very careful and with that. And last thing, uh, you mentioned the budget piece. I do that all the time. I go into a draft for each position based on projections and say, here's how much I want to spend for first base. Here's how much I want to... And now you got to be able to adapt to that because sometimes that doesn't happen. But if you can try to stick to that as much as possible, you don't blow all your money willy-nilly. And, and it, it's, a, it's another strategic piece of, a, of, a, of an auction draft. Yeah. yeah. So, I think you made a lot of, a lot of good points. Um, and, I mean, just the first thing you said, projection should be your foundation. And, obviously, I believe that. I'm a projection guy. <laughs> um, you don't have to like use projections as gospel or like only use projections, but they really do need to be part of your process, you know, as your foundation at the very least, I feel like, um, 
if you really are going to stand a chance in a competitive league. Yeah, and one thing, a little plug for ATC is that, you know, because ATC projections aggregates many other projections, it minimizes parameter risk, right? You know, for, for, for every player, sure, you know, if, if the true talent is he's going to hit 25 homers, sure, one year he can hit 28 and one year he can hit 22. That, that's true. That happens all the time. That's process risk. And, you know, that's going to happen because, you know, it, there's a finite number of games. But what is his true talent? Is it really 25? One projection system says 25, one says 28, one says 23. Um, ATC will actually minimize that pros the parameter risk because it'll funnel in on a lot of very good, credible projections, and it'll take, uh, it'll take a, a, a holistic wisdom of the crowds approach. Not only that, but if you see a player that has projections really agreeing, everybody says 25, 24, 25, 25, I can be more sure that that's correct. And if you have a player that 20, 30, 22, that's a wider spread. I'm actually less sure, believe it or not, less of the time he actually comes out. I've actually done research to show that the more consistent, the low variance players actually have an expected value higher than what an auction value would calculate. And the ones that have a wider spread are the opposite, that are actually much lower. So um, ATC is actually a very good way to incorporate some of the parameter risk and minimize it and really harness that. I have a question for you, Ariel. Um, so you talk about trying to play in all the different buckets, essentially. Trying to play, you know, if you're drafting a middle infielder, try to play in the, you know, the high-end range. Try to play in the middle range. Try to play in the low range. Um, I'm curious how you feel about that in regards to all the corner infield stuff that we've talked about. Because I feel like, I remember when we were drafting GDD, I feel like we kind of disagreed a little bit. Um, you wanted to play in the high end of the corner infielders. And I'm like, no, like let's wait on Joey Votto. Let's wait on Brandon Belt. Uh, we didn't get either of them. We drafted Jose Abreu up front, and we got him at a little bit of a discount. Um, but I feel like we missed out on some value because of that. How do you feel? Do you still think that's the right way to do it, or would you make exceptions depending on the actual player pool or the position you're dealing with? Like, I'm curious how you feel about that now. Yeah, well, I, I think the goal is not to get somebody at each value point. I think the goal is to be able to play at each value point, is to that if you notice there's value at any price point, be able to jump on it. So I wouldn't lock into, well, I know there's I know there's value here, so I'm only going to play here. If you see value at a different price point than you are used to, you got to jump on it. But that so said— e even if you think there's going to be five guys no. that, that are going to be $10 bargains— at the bottom end of first base, you would jump on a $2 bargain at the top. No, 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 not true. Okay. So when you're doing your planning, and if you anticipate that there's going to be great value at the bottom for corner infielder, then 100% you need to say, I'm going to save that roster spot because I'm going to maximize it that way. It, part of the prep in, in drafting an auction is to say which positions and or which categories, right, could be steals guys, do I think I'm going to get the most value at which price points? And that's the way that you need to plan your draft. Sure, if you get a $7 bargain up top of the corner, you got to take that. Right. But um, you recognize that it's there, and in general, your threshold for acceptable return on top that's, goes down. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. It's, it's to change the threshold. It's like at the end, I find it at the end of auctions where, um, you know, you've got, there's always bargains at the end of auctions. And the question is, who do I spend on? You say, wait a minute. 
you got to wait for the player that's going to maximize the return. I need a $5 return at this point. And even though a guy is three, you say, I can do better. And if the guy is five, you grab him, you say, I'm not going to do better. Right? You have to know what your possible return is at the bottom. I, I find knowing what you can get and what you can miss, that, that's a, you got to be able to gauge it, and that's one way you can win an auction. All right, well, this has been a really, really great – oh, you got we another question. question yep. All right, last question. Go for it. So you you guys are both amazing in the analytical projections, obviously. That's why we're all here. When, if ever, do you say, screw it, this is wrong, I like this guy? <laughs> Why are you saying that? I, I, and, and I don't mean that in a glib way. No, no, no. I, I'm honestly curious. When, if ever, do you do that? My, que my question is, why would you do it? And I say that because you need a good reason for it. You wouldn't just say it. Just be, oh, I'm a Giants fan. I'm going to draft Brandon Crawford really high this year because I like Brandon Crawford. Like, you need a reason. Oh. What is the reason that the projection is not accounting for? I've, that, I've, I've, that I've like done that. Guy? Two years ago, I had a hunch on Chris Paddock. I thought he was being, I, I, I thought his value was high, but I thought he was worth a little bit more. So I saw the way he was pitching in spring. I said, you know what? I'm going to go the extra dollar. I'm going to go the extra $2. I'm going to go the extra $3. And I think I was in a league with you and I picked Chris Paddock and I picked him early and people were like, what are you doing? And I said, I have a hunch. Sometimes, I know, I know both of you hate it, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes a gut feeling does pay off. Yeah, I will, I will never is. draft based on gut. If your answer to my question, if you're thinking about a guy like, oh, when should I go off projections? Well, like, I have this gut feeling. Yeah. I'll, I'll I love you, Ruvain, but I would say I no. Don't do that. Don't go on a gut feeling. I'll give you a scenario where you should. It's the playing time. If you think that a guy is going to get more playing time, then that's a reason to say, I'm going to pump up his playing time 100 at-bats and go with that value and calculate it. That's a reason. Or the opposite if he's going. That's the biggest reason. I think that the human eye, unless you know there's a new swing of this, sure. But other than that, I, I think projections do the better job than the naked eye most of the time, not in playing time. I think that following the team, knowing the stuff, that is better. And I'll tell you that in the ATC projections, the more manual-based uh, projection systems are counted more in the playing time formula, and the more automated ones are counting more in the rate formula. So that's my, what I would do. Is when you have hunches in playing time, go for that. Yeah, playing time is definitely the big one. Scouting type stuff, you know, projections aren't factoring in scouting reports because we don't have them. If, you know, you work for a, a major league club, their projections are going to be a factoring in scouting reports. Um, that being said, you have to be really careful if you're going to try to factor in a scouting take because, I mean, most of us are not trained scouts. Most of us, you know, maybe we, we think we see something, but do we really? Is it, you know, so it's just, it's, it's tough. The projections, by and large, are going to be much more accurate than, than gut feelings, than, you know, you know, uh, armchair quarterback or whatever you want to call it, like scouting, wa watching on TV and saying, oh, well, I think this guy looks looks really sharp, you know, during spring training. I'm just going to take him higher or whatever. All right. All right. It's time for the Injury Gurus report. Let's go for it, Ruben. Where do we start? Well, let's start with Jacob DeGrom. He last pitched on July 7th. He, has a, he was told, or people say, he had a partial tear in his UCL. He said he was fine. He did have Tommy John surgery back in October 2010. He was ramping up at the end of the year. They shut him down because the Mets weren't in it, unfortunately. So the question is where you get him in value next year. That's the main question. Mike Trout hasn't played since May 17th. 
It's a calf injury. He should be fine for next year. But everyone remembers Josh Donaldson. Uh, calf injury can pop up at any time. Cabrian Hayes met with a hand specialist last week, and he's expected to meet with another one in the coming weeks. He has a cyst on his left hand that has contributed to his recurring wrist, hand, and soreness. He may need surgery. If it's done, he may be ready for next year. Clayton Kershaw, he received a PRP injection last week. Um, he was rolled out for the playoffs. And surgery is trying to be avoided. We'll see. He is 33, turning 34 with almost 2,500 innings on his arm. We'll see how that goes. Mike Clevenger, he was noted to be throwing from 75 to 90 feet. He remains on track to start next year on time. He had Tommy John surgery November of last year. Dustin May, he may be back second half last, next year, but if you want to take another risk like people did on Syndergaard and Sale, be my guest. Tyler Glass now out for next year completely. He's having the Tommy John surgery. The reason I mention him is because he has a ray. He may get traded. Justin Verlander, he had Tommy John surgery September of last year. He should be fine in for next year. Jordan Hicks, the Cardinals announced that he's supposed to play here in Arizona. So we'll see how he goes. He goes very up and down. We don't know him. Uh, James Paxton, he's been throwing from 60 feet so far. He's lost the complete last this year for Tommy John. He had Tommy John surgery in April. Same goals for next year. Maybe get him in the second half. Maybe not. I don't know if you want to do that. Steven Strasburg is supposed to begin throwing in November. He's recovering from thoracic outlet surgery. He had it back in July. We'll see how that goes. Kyle Lewis had a bone bruise in his right knee, and he was shut down for the season. He had a torn meniscus, and he had surgery in June. He should be back next year, and he should be fine. Brian Anderson had shoulder surgery to repair his left shoulder capsule. He missed the end of last year. He should be okay, and he's expected to be ready for February to be back. Reese Hoskins, he was out with an abdominal issue. He had surgery. It sounds like he was a sports hernia. They didn't really announce it. He should be good for spring training. Aaron Hicks. Yes, Aaron Hicks still plays, and he's under contract to 2025 as a starting center fielder for the New York Yankees. Good luck with that. He was placed on the IL in May, diagnosed with a torn uh, wrist tendon. He had surgery. We'll see how that goes. Mike Moustakis had a heel injury. It turned into a hip injury. It turned into plantar fasciitis. He tried to come back, but plantar fasciitis can last for a long time. It can linger. He needed rest. He's going to get it, and he should be fine for next year. All right. Well, that is quite an injury report there and quite a show. Um, first of all, thank you, uh, everyone, for joining the show here. Thank you to our guest, Derek Cardi. Uh, Derek, why don't you just tell uh, us uh, where we can see all your stuff and uh, see the bad X and everything. Yeah, the bat and the bat X. You can find uh, various, pla various places for various uh, purposes for season long at Fangraphs, um, for DFS at Roto Grinders, for sports betting at EV Analytics. All right, moving. You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates on a daily week during the uh, during the offseason on a weekly basis. And during the season, I also have a weekly article discussing all these injuries on Roto Bowler. All right, my name's Ariel Cohen. You can see my stuff over at Fangraphs and at Roto Bowler. Uh, Going to be doing a bunch of uh, wrap-up uh, articles for the season, talking about uh, interprojection volatility, talking about the best projections of the year, talking about some scarcity of positions and market premiums and whatnot. So check those out in the coming months. Uh, the season's over, but my work is just starting. And you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. And, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangrass each and every week. All right, from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time.
Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.